0: the stage of the election cycle where there's just, you know, speculation in every direction about everything. So I was intrigued by a headline uh, that I read yesterday. Voting while God is watching. Does using churches as polling stations sway the ballot? Now, the um, the article is actually purely speculative. Uh, it acknowledges that... Uh, we have 350,000 churches mosques temples and other religious establishments across the country attended by more than 150 million Americans primarily for spiritual and social relationships but during elections many of those places and spaces double as centers for civic life that is the way the um the article the 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 author of the article frames it and so um, let me just let me just add this or just ask this where do you vote? Where do you vote? I either vote at my little uh town hall if it's a primary or I vote at my high school my local high school if it's the general election. where do you vote and if your answer is I vote at a church or I vote in a mosque or I vote in a temple or I vote in some other religious establishment um, then what the author is seeking to provoke you to ask is does that influence how you vote does where you vote influence how you vote okay my answer to that question is no my vote is not going to be influenced by where I am but the article the 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 lead is and the question provoked by the headline is voting while God is watching does using churches as polling stations sway the ballot? The theological issue for me is that that suggests that God is only watching what's happening inside of religious institutions or inside of churches specifically. OK, that's just lunacy. OK, God is the God who sees. God sees you no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. He knows whether or not you're voting and he knows who you're voting for and he knows what you're it, – it it's meaningless – Uh, Where you vote is meaningless to that part of the conversation. God is everywhere if he is anywhere. And there isn't anywhere that God is not watching. So there you go. That'll be my, uh, my question sort of contrary to the headline that it matters where you vote. It does matter that you vote. All right. Eugene Cho is up next. He's the author of Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, a Christian Guide for Engaging Politics. We'll be right back. Joining me now, the head of Bread for the World. He's also an author, a pastor, uh, a speaker, and a general humanitarian, Eugene Cho. Eugene, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Carmen, thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so I'll just admit I was intrigued by your new book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. Now, first of all, that is a great title. Tell us what it's about.
2: Well, uh, again, thanks for highlighting the book. The subtitle is A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. And I'm trying to tackle two topics that people aren't supposed to talk about publicly. It's about religion and politics. And as you and I and so many of us know, we're living in such disruptive, chaotic times. And it seems as if the political sphere, the banter, uh, has gone overboard. And so this is my attempt as a Christian, as a pastor, trying to encourage and challenge the church to do better and to be better.
0: All right. So I tried to reorganize um, the chapter so that there would be like thou shalt nots group together and then the positive thou shalts. And you have more thou shalt" than thou shalt nots, which I appreciated. But let's just highlight a few of the things that are covered in the book so that people can get a sense of it. Thou shalt not go to bed with political uh, parties. Okay. So that's provocative. And it sounds like you're going to talk about the third thing we're not supposed to talk about.
2: Well, you know, I think that chapter is, for us as Christians, I'm not suggesting that Christians can't support political parties, but sometimes I wonder if our allegiance is ultimately to a party, to a politician, or even to a nation, and I think Scripture says that we're to seek ye first the kingdom of God. Uh, To maybe elaborate on that a little further, my question that I wrestle with, sometimes even for myself and for others, is that... Is our politics informing our theology and our faith in Christ, or is it our faith, our theology in Christ, guided by the Scripture, rooted in the person of Jesus, is that what's shaping our politics? I would contend that it feels as if today and for the past probably some time that it's the former rather than the latter.
0: Yeah, I think there's no question about that. And I I appreciate your emphasis in the book on the kingdom of God not only your interest in it, but being sure that those of us who are kingdom citizens are actually then turning and functioning as ambassadors of the king and the kingdom and the principles of the kingdom, and not just as political operatives uh, with, as you have described, allegiance to a particular political party. It can lead to being perceived, at least, as uh, being a jerk. So thou shalt not be a jerk is really about the way we engage.
2: You know, I think sometimes we're so obsessed with the what that we forget the how. And I think the how truly matters. When Jesus speaks and scriptures speak about the fruits of the Spirit, uh, we're to embody those things, not just for a 60-minute service on a Sunday or on our virtual Zoom service, but as something that we're called to engage in, in all seasons, in all situations. I mean, we're also even called to love our neighbor's. And I think when Scripture speaks about loving our neighbors, there's a reason why Jesus goes out of his way to accentuate and to use examples of human beings that were not seen as human or neighbors during that time, uh, leopards, Samaritans, uh, uh, those who were marginalized. And so when we're called to love our neighbors, it's not just those that look like us, think like us, feel like us, uh, worship like us, and I think this is appropriate for this conversation, even those that might not vote like us. And so, yes, the what matters, uh, but I think we should also make sure that our how parallels the person and the kingdom of God.
0: I'm talking with Eugene Cho. He's president of Bread for the World. We're talking about his new book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. It is uh, practical. It is engaging. It's provocative. It will absolutely entice you to ask questions about yourself and provoke conversations with others. Um, and let me invite people to visit Eugene uh, online, Eugene Cho, dot com. Great place to connect with him and all of his uh, social media um, spaces as well. Eugene, um, let's talk about Listening seems strange to talk about listening, but let's talk about Mm -hmm. listening and the particular power that listening has today.
2: Well, it just feels I mean, it it seems so redundant because I think part of what it means to be human is to build relationships, and you can't build relationships if you don't learn how to listen. I think we have been drinking the Kool Aid of trying to win every argument, and sometimes winning every argument is to demolish someone uh, by your pervasive thoughts. And so we need to rediscover the art of listening. Uh, Going back to what I was sharing earlier about loving your neighbors, you cannot love your neighbors if you don't know your neighbors. And you can't know your neighbors if you're not committed to this mutuality. And part of mutuality, yes, is sharing your story, your views, your thoughts, but it's also listening to others as well. Jesus performs incredible miracles, supernatural things. Uh, To me, what fascinates me the most about Jesus's public ministry is his willingness uh, to break bread with those that he wasn't supposed to break bread with. He had conversations with people that he was not supposed to have conversations with. I think this is one of the ways that Christians in our culture today, we can be leading uh, by learning how, again, to listen to others.
0: So you have this idea, and it's provocative, and I want you to tell us about this idea just right when we come back from our break. The idea is make dinner great again. So when Eugene Cho and I return from a very brief break, he is going to tell us about this idea make dinner great again. It's a part of the book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. We'll be right back. All right. Resuming my conversation with Eugene Cho, he is the president of Bread for the World. You can find him at EugeneCho.com. The book is Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. Eugene, you've got a great idea in here. It's actually fun. It's based in hospitality. Make dinner great again. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, I I can't take credit for this idea. This was started by two Asian-American women, Justine and Tria, and they began this organization, called Make America Dinner Again. MADA is the acronym for it. And how it started, it's really interesting. It started after the last presidential election. And they honestly share on their website that they were devastated by the election of President Trump. And as they were trying to process what happened, how it was that it came to be that he became elected as president, they wanted to look within their social circles to have conversations with people who voted for Trump. And they realized that they knew zero, zilch. They didn't know a single person that voted for Trump. And it wasn't just in their inner circles, it was in their wider circles as well. And I think in some ways it speaks to the echo chambers that many of us create in our own lives. So they decided to put something out on social media explaining their situation and wanting to create a safe space Right. everyone brought a little dish to share, that the intent wasn't to accuse, it wasn't to shame, it wasn't to vilify. They simply wanted to understand others in their thought processes. And that became the genesis of Make America Dinner Again. And it has uh, spurred on in cities all around the country, and in fact, other nations have also created their own versions of Make America Dinner Again. I joined uh, my particular chapter in Seattle, Washington. It was uncomfortable. It was awkward. It was uh, interesting. And I have to just share, we didn't solve the ailments of our society. We didn't solve um, the hunger crisis. We didn't solve national debt or the immigration problem. But it did teach me to listen. Uh, it taught me again that people that might disagree with me on a variety of issues that they're also human beings. And if if anything, I think it taught me to be a better human. That's the the story behind Make America Dinner Again.
0: All right, I love that, and um, it it sort of reminds me of a conversation I had with a guy named Aaron Chambers. I know that he's a pastor in like Northern. Colorado, and he wrote a book called "Eats with Sinners." And if you're not like if the two of you haven't intersected, that's uh, there's a there's a soul uh, friend for you. Um, anyway, that r- reminded me of it when I was um, when I was reading um, that part of the book. Um, let's get let's get down to some nitty gritty here. Let's get down to some specifics. Number seven in the book is thou shalt not lie, get played, or be manipulated. Um, I feel like this isn't particularly important today. Um, I feel like not only do we believe some lies, but we then get manipulated into passing along to others that which is, that which is not true. And then that leads us as Christians to not be, you know, trusted in future conversations.
2: Yes. I mean, gosh, we could probably unpack that for hours. Uh, We certainly don't want to be directly involved in lying or manipulating. That's wrong. It's sinful Uh, as Christians who have a high value of truth. We should name it and acknowledge it. And if we're complicit in those things, we need to confess of our sins. I think sometimes it's the subtle, deceptive, manipulative things that go on in our journalism and our society. And there are many people that now contend that every single human being, because of our access to our tablets, our smartphones, our computers, we're like many journalists that are passing on information And oftentimes, algorithms in social media and news is catered to our biases and our prejudices. And we're basically, again, surrounding ourselves in our echo chambers. And so it may have a small element of small key truth, but it doesn't capture the full picture. And this is not, again, a an accusation of one particular party or the other, this is all around our political banter. And it's also infected, I think, the larger Capital C Church as well. I think to make it even more complicated is that we're living in this microwave generation on steroids. And so we feel this urgency or temptation to pass on news, to retweet news, to share news without actually processing it, researching it, and discerning if it is accurate, and if it's something that is worth passing on to others.
0: Eugene, I'd love to uh, give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about one day's wages. This is a really visionary and potentially transformative idea. So can can you share with people about one day's wages?
2: Absolutely. And thank you so much for asking this question. My wife and I and our three young kids back then, a couple of them are in college right now. But about 11 years ago, we were convicted by the Holy Spirit after experiencing with our own eyes some of the disparity of injustice and hunger and poverty around the world. And so it's a long story. But as we came back home, uh, we felt convicted to spend some time praying, processing how we should respond. And after some time of discernment, we were convicted to give up our year's wages. And so back then, we're a one income family. And I share this not to sound holier than thou. Uh, we're not trying to pat ourselves in the back. But part of the reason why we divulge this is because we don't want to ask anyone to do something that we're not willing to do ourselves. And so during this time of giving up our year's wages, it took us actually three years of saving, simplifying and selling things that we didn't need. And during that three years, uh, we were given this vision of starting an organization called One Day's Wages, where we're trying to inspire people around the world to consider giving up at least one day's of their wages at least once a year. And all of it, 100 percent of it, we Uh, invested in carefully vetted projects around the world that are focused on eradicating, ending, fighting extreme global poverty. So it's been about 11 years. We've had about 13,000 plus donors give approximately eight plus million dollars. We've had churches and companies and musicians. And again, it's just a simple concept that you don't have to be a rock star or a millionaire or the owner of Amazon or Microsoft. Like every single human being, we have the capacity to be a philanthropist, which in its root word literally means a lover of humanity, someone who cares for one another. And so that's the story of One Day's Wages. People can look online at onedayswages.org to join the movement.
0: All right. I just love it. This is one of those things that, you know, like started at a kitchen table in prayer between a husband and a wife. And it's literally changing the lives of people all over the world. So if you're listening right now, um, I want you to check it out. One Days Wages, one days wages.org You can visit with Eugene uh, at eugenecho.com. You can also check out Bread for the World. And today we're talking about Eugene's latest book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. Eugene Cho, thank you uh, so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen.
2: Carmen, thank you again so much and blessings to you and to all your listeners.
0: Likewise. We'll be right back. All right. We find ourselves in the midst of all kinds of conversations in the culture today today. Lots of uh, us who are white, Caucasian, fair-skinned, having a difficult time finding a way into the racial justice conversation. I'm going to talk next with Brenda Salter McNeil. She is the author of Becoming Brave, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: This is Max Locato. Of what import is a wineless wedding? Of all the needs of the people on the planet, why would bone-dry wine vats matter? Simple. It mattered to Jesus because it mattered to Mary. She presented the need to Christ. In John chapter 2, she says to him, they have no more wine. She knew the problem. She knew the provider. She connected the first with the second. Now, if Jesus was willing to use divine clout to solve a social faux pas, how much more willing would he be to intervene on the weightier matters of life? He wants you to know that you can take your needs, all your needs, to him. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Remember, friends... You are never alone. Show me your face.
2: Fill up this space. My world needs you
0: right now. I'm thrilled to be introducing you today to Brenda Salter McNeil. She has many books that she has already published, but we're talking today about her brand new book, becoming brave. This is about uh, finding the courage to pursue real justice, as opposed to just the kind of justice that we might talk about. This is about really finding the courage to pursue racial justice right now. Brenda, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It's my honor to be with you. Thanks. Absolutely. So um, this is a book about Esther Or it started out being a book about Esther, and it really is, but it's also a book about you. Talk about that development of this storyline. Yeah, when I began writing this book,
3: I preached this sermon quite a bit. And uh, one of the first times I preached it, I was with Dr. John Maxwell, and I talked about him in the book and he in my sermon. And he thought, "What?" And I told him that I saw her as an unlikely leader. And he talks about the law of timing. And so I was really saying, "Hey, many of us will not see ourselves as leaders who are supposed to have any real political, social, you know, impact in the world. We're just normal people, right?" But the The more I began to look at Esther's unlikeliness, the more I realized that we were living in a time that was not just calling us to do something, but that the time was almost a defining moment. And when those defining moments show up, our leadership is necessary in all the different forms that we embody. So I had to retrace my steps of why I didn't always speak truth to power.
0: And what are some of the things that you discovered along the way? What are some of the let's use this word tempering influences that have impacted you along the way that have kept you from speaking truth to power in particular moments?
3: Yeah, I realized that I well, first of all my my personality is is such I love God, I'm 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 nice, you know, my I'm a friendly person <laughs> and uh more than anything I love God and I love the church. And because I do, I was reared in a Christian environment that basically said, you leave certain topics alone. And if you can convince people, if you can really be persuasive theologically and biblically that the call to reconciliation is in the word of God, that it's not a social agenda. And so it wasn't like I was timid or afraid. If you get to know me, I'm pretty, pretty strong in my heart, but I also care for people. And so my desire... To care for people well and to prove that I had no hidden motive or agenda, because often if you bring up issues that are social and cultural or current events that we we need to be involved in, people might think that you're trying to push your particular point of view. I really wanted to persuade the church that this was a call of God on the church. And if I could do that, I thought it would convert us, we would be transformative ages in the world, and God's kingdom would be seen more fully on earth than in heaven but I realized that doing that wasn't getting to the results of actually changing and and engaging the world around us.
0: One of the observations that I make is that it feels like we just keep building the same foundation over and over and over again for reconciliation, for racial reconciliation. We keep making the positive biblical argument. We keep pointing to the right passages of Scripture. And yet, we have not grown up in our approach to this. We have not built upon that foundation, something beyond it, that actually gets us to the place where there's substantive justice, where there's substantive equality. Am I that's at least my observation. Do you share that sense?
3: Yes, that's exactly where Becoming Brave came from. So I started writing a book about Esther. I've been working on this book for years, probably five years total. And so like you, I began to realize not only could Esther not stay in the palace and be silent, I realized that the church had become a bit of a palace. And we had begun to conflate diversity and multi-ethnicity with reconciliation. So if we had sang songs in Spanish or if we had a diverse worship team or those kinds of things, or if our church had reached out more, if our college campuses had more you know, students of color, it seemed like that for us became reconciliation. But we never got to talking about systemic change. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. It began feeling like we were going around in circles. And my greatest concern was that the credibility of the church was beginning to be questioned, ex- especially by the generations coming behind us. They really began to feel like the church was irrelevant and we know better. And I wanted to somehow speak to that void because uh, watching us go around in circles does not cause the generation to believe that we serve a God who is able to create change in our
0: world. Absolutely. the I mean, the entire redemptive story of human history, it either produces fruit or it doesn't. And I think that what you, the observations that you make and then how you help us I think, have a much more mature conversation about how we can pursue racial justice right now. It's going to help the church become more fruitful in the right ways, but it is, it is going to require some pruning and some pairing as well. I don't deny that, and some tilling of soil. I'm talking with Brenda Salter McNeil. She's the author of Becoming Brave, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now. Brenda, you have a chapter in here about the prophetic power of lament, We have actually been talking during sort of this several months of COVID. um, We've actually been talking a fair amount about lament. You bring a different approach to that conversation. Talk with us about the prophetic power of lament
3: yeah I really do appreciate Mordecai because I think we need him now we need people like Mordecai who calls a thing a thing who is willing to make a public uh spectacle of himself to call Esther's attention all of us who have somehow become isolated and it insulated and ignorant in the palaces that have come around us our palace can be our job our palace can be our college campus our palace can be our cul-de-sac our palace can can be the church. And there are people whose lives are literally being destroyed, but we're never really close enough to see that for ourselves to understand what's happening. And so lament is not just weeping and wailing just to to grieve. It is literally a public call to pay attention. It's a public call to say that this should break our hearts. So I think about things that are happening in our world right now, and silence is not going to heal us. Mordecai weeps and Wales, and when Esther says, hey, Mordecai, here's some clothes, cover yourself up, stop all that, he sends those clothes back, because I want to suggest that it is time for the church to cry out. It is time for us to no longer continue to look at things like George Floyd being strangled in public after nine minutes. Now, I understand that law enforcement has to do what law enforcement does, but after nine minutes of a person being under a person's knee, there's. This could have been a moment where that person would say, there is no longer a need to do this. And when that does not happen, that's when Mordecai says, this is wrong, Esther, you must pay attention to this. You must speak out about this. That's what I believe lament is about. It's not a mamby-pamby gest- gesture. It is a true crying out for God to pay attention and for the people of God to pay attention.
0: Brenda uh, McNeil and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about becoming brave. And we're going to ask the question, what might happen? What might happen if we all decided to become brave, finding the courage to pursue racial justice now? That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation now with Brenda Salter McNeil. You can Find her online at SalterMcNeil.com. The book we're discussing today is Becoming Brave. Brenda, I love uh, how you talk about speaking truth to power and then the reconciling power of women. But I want to get to have the end in mind here, um, and that is what might happen. What might happen? Like cast the vision of what might happen if we all decided to become brave in the way that you are um, envisioning. Yeah, well, I'll answer it in
3: two ways. One is that we can anticipate pushback. And some of that pushback will be severe and some of it will be from family and friends and other people will wonder what's wrong with us. Esther was really right to know that what might happen is that she could get in trouble. So when Mordecai initially says, you must speak to the king, uh, her first thought was no way, <laughs> you know, and I understand that. And so let me tell you quickly, I had a gentleman who I don't know personally, but he evidently heard me me speak at a conference or somewhere. He happened to be white, looked by his picture on his Facebook uh, page to be middle-aged. And he said to me, and I quote, we liked you better when you just quoted Bible verses. Mm. Ouch. And that hurt. That hurt. I, I can anticipate that the more we stand up and speak up, there'll be people who will leave our church, who will suggest that we're becoming political as opposed to spiritual. We can anticipate that those things will happen. But I also believe that we can anticipate this. I believe that we can see, like Esther, an opportunity to step into a Kairos moment, a moment in history where God is doing something strategic. And that's what Mordecai says to Esther, and I'm saying this to the church. Who knows? Perhaps we been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. In the middle of a per, of a pandemic, in the middle of divisiveness, in the middle of global crisis and national crisis and leadership voids and, and divisiveness, maybe this is the healing place that the church is supposed to step in. So I think this is our defining moment. And I think the church could reclaim its place as the beacon of light and healing for the world if we would dare step into this moment to speak the truth and to tell the truth about God's kingdom and what it really is supposed to entail. It's not supposed to be a place where people are divided along all kinds of lines, racial included. It's supposed to be a kingdom made up of people of every tribe and every nation and every language. And if the church could embody that, I believe people would turn to
0: God. Well, and that's what the church is called forth to be like God uh, puts us here in order that we might be a living demonstration of the kingdom. I mean, we are supposed to be that which the world could look at and say, oh, that's what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And we are a very poor uh, representation of that reality right now. I mean, and so I think that there's a, a willingness to acknowledge that the church is a poor reflection of the kingdom. The, then you have to say, okay, but I have to be willing to move out of the palace that I've built, this edifice uh, that I love so much, whatever it is. And I have to be willing then to become a genuine kingdom ambassador as opposed to, you know, whatever celebrated, uh, I don't even know, you know, earthbound. I I'm, I'm having a hard time finding words because I, I know what I'm trying to describe, but I don't even know how to say how wrong what we've become is. Yeah, and
3: I think I think you're so on target. I'm wondering if this coronavirus and the fact that many of us, if not all of us, can no longer go to church, maybe now we have to be the church. Mm. Because mm. I think we've come to the place where we think it has something to do with where we gather. Perhaps mm. it's being the kingdom of God, that ambassador of the kingdom in our neighborhoods. Maybe it's noticing that 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 a family is struggling. Maybe it's noticing that uh that there are needs right Right where we live that God could step into and speak to. I, I had a woman who has a, a Muslim neighbor, and she said, I wish I could invite her over, but I'm afraid of what my other neighbors will say uh, about me as a Christian. And I thought to her, this is the ideal time for you to invite that woman over for a cup of tea. Why not do that? It doesn't mean anything other than you're trying to show kindness and love, and God steps into those into those spaces. Uh, It's it's time for us to think about the ways that not just on a personal level, on a systemic level, we've got a vote coming up in November. And this is where we say, I want good education for everybody. How do I help that? What do I do? Maybe there's a library or something that we could do to help other parents in our neighborhood because everybody's struggling. I just really think this is an opportune time for us to look for those opportunities that God is calling us to look outside the palace, see the need around us and to see what influence we have that we could actually make a difference on a systemic level which is why I talk about it being a call to justice because I think we've limited it to a relational connection with nice people where I think we're supposed to care about people enough to care about the policies that impact them too
0: so I've seen some phrases lift up lifted up recently that um, that as a white person I am um, I'm learning how these phrases, are used in other conversations that I have obviously not been party to on a fair number of occasions. One would be nice white people. The other would be uh, in relationship to white allies. And I just want to make the observation, Brenda, that there are those of us who we want to be allies, but we also don't want to get in the way. And we don't we certainly don't want to in any way impede You know, the very positive pursuit of racial justice. And so thank you for the way in which your book, Becoming Brave, equips us to not only see Esther, but to see you and to hear you and to learn how we can participate and grow up in every way as fellow believers in Christ, um, that together we might more effectively show forth the gospel to the world, um, you know, through reconciled relationships, not just me reconciled to God and Jesus Christ, but substantive reconciliation in the world that God so loves.
3: Exactly. And you know
0: what? I'm on the journey
3: too. I talk about reconciliation as a journey. Esther didn't just wake up one day. She went through a process. So we're going through a process and we will make mistakes. So for people who are afraid to take the first step, I'd say, don't don't worry so much about protecting yourself. If you make a mistake, at least say, I was trying. I would say, this is a time for us to just give it a shot. When we see our children take their first step and they stumble and fall, we don't scold them. We kind of say, step up. Honey, try it again, and that's what I want to say to my white uh, Christian friends, at brothers and sisters. Yes, there'll be mistakes, but at least you want to get make the effort to try. So I appreciate the way you're using your program to do this. I appreciate the way people are understanding that it can't just be relational. I can't just make a friend. I do have to start thinking about systemic issues, and that includes me too, Carmen. I'll tell you something. I can speak Spanish. I love Latino people. I sincerely do, and I went to Coast for summer to learn how to speak Spanish fluently, And I came back and God really challenged me. I was asked to go to Washington DC with a group of clergy uh, people to talk about immigration reform, not from one side or the other. There were both Republicans and Democrats and other people in between. And we were just called to say, We should care about fixing this. And I was afraid to go because I'm not political. I don't know much about immigration reform, but I did go because God said to me as I was coming back from Costa Rica, you can't say that you love people and not care about the policies that impact those people. And so I know now that I want to say something, even if I get it wrong, I am trying to advocate in a way that demonstrates I know that we have to see systemic change.
0: I love it. Brenda, um, it's a delight to uh, to meet you, albeit uh, over the air. Um, I look forward to cultivating not only uh, a relationship with you personally, but also cultivating this effort together to really pursue racial justice uh, in a way that is is transformational for us as a culture. The book is Becoming Brave. You can find Brenda at SalterMcNeil.com. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen.
3: It's been a pleasure.
0: Absolute delight. We'll be right back when was the last time that you actually just spent time in the gospels matthew mark luke and john and you just intentionally read through you made a study of all of the places where jesus teaches about the king the father or the kingdom of heaven where jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom of heaven is like like." Um, Make, make a study of those passages and note what the king and the kingdom are like, because you and I are supposed to be, supposed to be ambassadors of the kingdom, a provisional demonstration of the kingdom of heaven here in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. That's who we are. talk about identity. We are, yes, image bearers of the living God. Yes, we are the redeemed people of God. Yes, we are a priesthood of all believers. Yes, yes, yes. And we are ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of the king and the kingdom. So that's an identity issue. But in order to rightly represent or represent Christ in the world, we actually have to know him. We have to know the king. And we have to know what the kingdom is like if we want to live in the midst of the kingdoms of this world as a provisional demonstration of another kingdom. All right, so be on the lookout today. This is your bolo. Be on the lookout today for opportunities to reflect the king and the kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Have a great day and God bless.